Live from the Pathway Studios in Johnston proper, you are live from the path. For the path, we're going to you from the uh, Pathway Studios here in Johnston proper. Welcome to the show. That's a strong start. <laughs> I goes. I was trying to think. Uh, I, I, I've, I've ceased uh, deciding to make apologies for not broadcasting like we're supposed to. I thought, like we started the year, mm-hmm. and I thought, oh yeah, we're going to be on it. We're going to be broadcasting. It's going to be great. Yeah. And I th- we, what are we? Two shows in? Two months in? A show a month? Yeah. Was, we're disaster. consistent. <laughs> That's it. All right. Uh, positives. Here's what we got going on the show tonight. So, um, uh, first of all, Mike's out, but Greg Hudson is here. Hey. Uh, you, you remember him. He's the guy that tries to cheat at Secular Solomon. So Ooh, if you don't wow. recall, uh, that's, that's the guy. It's, it's good old uh, Greg uh, Cheater uh, Hudson. Fun to do. So anyway, Greg, thanks for, thanks for joining us tonight. <laughs> it's good um, to be here. <laughs> and so we've got, we've got some articles. So this is what happens when we don't do a show. There's like, uh, we got articles flying around. Um, there was one in uh, Christianity Today that says half a millennial Christians say it's wrong to evangelize. So we're going to take a look at that. The Christian Post had an article, a uh, liberal Lutheran pastor melts purity rings into vagina sculpture, presents to Gloria Steinem. It sounds like a made-up article, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It sounds like something you would find on some sort of, sort of satire site. Oh, Babylon B. Like here, yeah, right. here's, here right. we took this thing, and then Gloria Steinem just is there. But no. Uh, <laughs> There's something ridiculous that could never happen. That's right. It's on the Christian Post. Uh, and then Mike had uh, something from Apple News that said the rise of the star-studded Instagram-friendly evangelical church. So anyway, let's, uh, we're going to get to those, and then we've got some uh, advice on Dear Life from the Path. And we'll, uh, we'll see. The, I, I, did, I took a, a peruse of it. There's a, a 65-year-old woman that says uh, she wants to be admired for um, more than her looks. Huh. Wants men to look at just a, <clears throat> just a little bit deeper. So, I mean, I, we'll see if we're capable of that. You must be a looker. Yeah, no, she uh, self-proclaimed. I mean, she's in her 60s. Yeah, 65. Still, still. All I can think of is, I can't think of you as anything other than an object. Yeah, so, I I mean, I'd assume that that just just follows a man to age, right? Uh, Mm. Or do you think it fades off? A 65-year-old man isn't doing that anymore? I don't know. Have you ever seen a 65-year-old Warren Harding? He's looking great. No, 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 that's not what I mean. (laughs) Oh. Testosterone kind of kind of depletes a little as you go. Yeah, I mean, does that does that deplete your ability to? Um, oh, I, see what you're saying. I mean, to see, to to see the next few steps through. But like, uh, I mean, maybe the maybe it's just the movies. The movies are fooling me. But they always got some kind of old guy looking down the road, giving a whistle or something. Is that not is that not true? Is it, am I being fooled by the Hollywood elite? Well, you know, you know, uh, as, as a guy who's ex- have, has experience around old people in Kiwanis. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember a couple, three years ago going to the Urbandale uh, Golf and Country Club, and they were upstairs meeting and downstairs with a pool. When I walked in the room, all these much older than myself men were oogling out the window and making all kinds of comments, and I thought, what are they looking at? And then I realized it was a swim pool with young women with bikinis. This Okay. I was embarrassed, thinking these are your great grandchildren's <laughs> ages. Do you not have any morals? Well, that really feels awkward. Yeah, I, I was like, guys, it's Kiwanis. <laughs> yeah, let's pull, let's pull together, fellas. Let's ring the bell and say the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Greg Hudson, I feel like you were you had some doubts on this. Uh, you know, I had some thoughts, and I was like, you know, I think uh, if she has because this uh, this woman, well, we're gonna get to it with Dear Abby, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we'll get to it a little bit later here. Dang how, it! How embarrassing! How embarrassing! All right, anyway, we'll pick that up on uh, Dear Life. Uh, from the path, I'm not sure that word that you used. Did it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Did it? <laughs> so here we go. Uh, on, from Christianity Today, half a millennial Christians say it's wrong to evangelize. Actually, mm. after this story, remind me. I've got. I have an interesting thought. Um, interaction with millennials and churches and workplaces. Uh, I'll, I'll get to that after we talk about the story. So it says millennials used to be the group that churches and ministries were angling to evangelize. Now, all grown up and poised to overtake baby boomers as the largest generation, they're the ones doing the evangelizing. At least they should be. But new research from the Barna Group and the creators of the Alpha Course offers some disappointing news regarding the 20-somethings and 30-somethings now on deck to carry on the faith. Nearly half of practicing Christian millennials, churchgoers who consider religion an important part of their lives, believe that evangelism is wrong. They're more than twice as likely as their parents and grandparents, boomers and elders respectively, to say that it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. While this statistic could easily bolster stereotypes of a lazy, distracted, and increasingly unaffiliated generation, the minority of millennials who have stayed active in their churches also show higher markers of commitment in other areas, as well as savvier sense of the religious pluralism and diversity they were raised around. The recent Barna release found that despite the reticence around the practice, millennials consider themselves good evangelists and still see themselves as representatives for their faith. That's funny. Hey, we don't think this is a good idea, but we're pretty good at it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, nearly all practicing millennials, 96%, said witnessing for Jesus is part of being a Christian, and they were more likely than any other generation to say they were gifted at sharing their faith. What? What? How do they know? <laughs> I'm pretty good. <laughs> That's like the best parents are people who don't have children yet. Yeah, right. I, I was an awesome parent before I had children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I went downhill from there. Uh, well, then, yeah, yeah. I mean, theory, uh, theory is great. Uh, okay, so hold on. Let's look at this. So they get genera- generational differences on faith sharing. Here we go. Part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. Um, millennials, 96%. Oh, it's, it's a de- uh, agree, disagree. 96% millennials, 97% Gen X, 95% baby boomers, 95% elders. You know what's interesting? That there's not a, that these aren't 100. Yeah. There's 4%, 5% roughly of every Christian you meet that says part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus, and they're like, "Yeah, I don't really agree with that. Huh. Yeah. That's weird. It's wild. I, I'm thinking that, though, the, the, you're putting it through a filter of people who actually really believe and follow Jesus and are disciples as opposed to someone who says, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, uh, that's, that's like, uh, oh, my goodness, 90% of people in Congress are Christian. Yeah, there you go. Really? That's, they sang God Bless America that one time. They did that one time. I remember. Mm. But that's more of the colloquial Christian label versus uh, maybe practicing. I mean, you could at least fake it well and vote for the hundred. Maybe. I, it's, you know what's interesting is that I suppose like uh, like that that pre- we've had kind of that discussion before about some of these surveys, but it, it predicates on a person who says uh, I'm willing to represent my faith incorrectly. But otherwise, be truthful in the survey. <laughs> like, it's kind of a weird dichotomy of a person yeah. who wants to be faithful to the responses. Um, so let's see. The best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. Uh, Dan, for baby boomers, what percentage do you think believe that? Agree. Baby boomers. of uh, Christian baby boomers. Yeah. Well, I, I would... Uh, 
Um, yeah, I'm going to say 88%. 88? Uh, 97. Ah, that's just better. I'm happy. There, uh, yeah. Because okay. I was going to go high. I thought, no, no. Again, though, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to get greedy here, but I mean, I feel like this is 100. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think people should believe in the Jesus I believe in. Uh, no, that, that'd probably be a mistake for some. You know what would have been super interesting is if they followed up with, if, they, if, if you don't believe that the best thing that could ever happen to someone for them to come to know Jesus, like, what is the best thing that could happen to someone? Yeah, but what, what's the better option? Like, like uh, shakes from the Chick-fil-A or something. Like, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No it doubt. blessed. Well, it's uh, like those old elementary school true-false questions here. You always hope for the true because sometimes they said, all right, is this true or false? But if false, tell me why it's false. Yeah. But you were always hoping the true, you just say true and you move on. Yeah, I hope it's, it's true. False. <laughs> so if you say no... Why? you got to explain why. Tell us more. That'd be great to hear. But they did not do that. It does not appear. So here was the, here was the crux thing. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. So I, I, let's be clear on something here. The, the title of the article was Half a Millennial Christian Say It's Wrong to Evangelize. But the, the question was more specific than that. I don't know that it matters, frankly, what the, when the takeaway is. But they're specifically asking, do I approach someone of a different faith to believe mm-hmm. something different that's not uh when otherwise 90 um 96 percent of them said or 97 percent of gen x said that it's part of my faith to be a witness to jesus or about jesus and that they think they're pretty good at it and so uh there's a bit of a caveat here uh the implication is still wrong it says that like if you that may, maybe there might be other ways, I guess, is kind of the impl- implication here. So it's still wrong, but like, um, I think the title's a bit misleading. What's the exact wording again of the survey question? It is, it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. All right. It's wrong. It's kind of evangelism, though. I mean, I guess the wording, though, might have turned some people off. Yeah, and, and it, 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 it depends on uh, how they start to define faith, right? So, like, do I look at, are those denominational differences? Uh, or do they, like, literally mean it's, like, me and a Hindu? Yeah. Right? True. And so, 47% of millennials said that it was wrong, 27% Gen X, 19% baby boomers, and 20% of the older generation. I think that's a good point on the, on the is this under the umbrella of chrysanthemum? And I think that's, that's a fine question, only because... Uh, if if we're talking like Lutherans and Catholics and then Methodists, if you're thinking, ah, oh, it's wrong to tell the Methodists that uh, they need to share my faith as a Baptist. So uh, I think if they're thinking in that particular regard, then maybe it would be lower. But unless you're talking about Hindus, Sikhs, talking Jews, if we're talking uh, uh, Muslims, if we're talking about other religions outside of Christianity, well... I think that's a good point because maybe people were thinking under the umbrella of Christianity. Yeah, because it also says that in 2013, uh, a different survey said that two-thirds of millennials said they had presented the gospel to someone within the past year. I mean, that's, that's pretty stiff. Yeah, that's, good. that's, that's, good that's pretty solid. I, like, if, if true, um, but I, I, think, I think the, the, the title of the article does a disservice to the conversation, frankly. So uh, they're only talking to people who they believe have no faith in anything, maybe. That's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. If you're already a practicing whatever, I should leave you alone because all religions are equal. But if you don't believe anything, well, you might as well believe mine because 
I know you and you know me. I can help you. So I think so I think that's where I where I struggle with the vagueness of the question is uh like I wouldn't have any reason to try to again within to Greg's point within within Christendom right like I'm not going to I don't necessarily feel like I have to convert a Methodist uh right so and so I I don't know if it's wrong like again like if there's a moral wrongness to it um but that's different than, say, dealing with someone who, I mean, who fundamentally believes something different than what you believe. That would explain the generational difference, I do believe. If, if that is the context in which people were taking it, I think that would explain it much, much more likely. I think the church wars, per se, the denominational wars were much more prominent in previous decades mm-hmm. than they are today. I think when you look back in American history, we're talking... Uh, the Lutherans versus Baptists versus Catholics versus Protestants versus Baptists versus uh, Episcopalians versus all these things were much more prominent in previous years and previous decades of American history. And yet where we've come now, I, I think I, I think is uh, I think that would speak to the fact that those older generations. What does the oldest generation say? Uh, they're at 20 percent. They're 20 percent. 20 percent said it's wrong. So yeah, 80% of people are like, no, it's not wrong because those Methodists need to be Baptists. It's like (laughs) things like that. But today, 50% kind of where we've come within the umbrella of Christianity is much more religiously religiously pluralistic. And within that pluralism, I think it's more like, you're Methodists? Okay. I'm Baptist. That's okay, too. We're, We're all on the same Jesus team. And while we have different styles... Those different stylistic differences within denominations, between denominations, I think they are less... Um, Substantive? Yeah, I imagine so. Or at least uh, on it's the a, surface. They assume. Yeah, yeah. It shows you they're somewhat ignorant <clears throat> of the differences because if you're actually reading the Bible, some of them you'd look at and go, ah, you really kind of... Maybe I'm speaking as an old guy here, though, that you know, some of them actually should open their Bible once in a while, some of the denominations. And and it would come up with uh, different conclusions than what they're doing. No, so I don't disagree with that. So, um, but I would say um, I would say they're missing out on uh, they're they're missing out on the fullness of life following Jesus, but not missing out on Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like that, <clears throat> that I, maybe that's just a generational thing that says, look, I, I don't I don't think that's right. Is it something worth you know tossing seats over? I don't know. Yeah. Like of all the things that we can agree on, if we can go there and like we get the of all the things, frankly, that that people are prone to getting wrong. There's a little bit of hubris in um, in fighting over some of that. But some of it is certainly worth fighting for. And I think that's the risk, too, is um, if you have uh, completely open doors, you don't recognize like you, there are things you have to draw distinctions on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you're not willing to do that, um, that's a disservice, I think, to the to the gospel itself. And I think you do have to continue to fight for what, um, what is, what is true. It's just, I think that there's the question is, as to how deep you allow a schism to, to exist for some of that stuff. Sure. Sure. Um, and I wouldn't call that evangelism either, but, but no, agreed. Again, that's probably my, how I'm defining it. And maybe. Yeah. Interesting. Joe, I know 80 year old guy wouldn't think of it that way. Yeah. I, 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 that does seem like it, like it would make sense. And like they were, um, that's like such a significant difference, either forty-seven percent to say nineteen or twenty percent. Um, but this is the same group. Here was the other. Here's another question on the survey. If someone disagrees with you, it means that they are judging you. Um, the baby boomers and elder generation about ten percent. Um, millennials forty percent. That's that's kind of embarrassing, fellas. 
yeah, I think I think these relationships uh, can be somewhat inverse here. Ben, what you said a little bit ago was tossing chairs. I think uh, Christian folks were much more willing to toss chairs 30, 40, 50 years ago than they are today. I think the tossing chairs uh, within Christianity. But yet, I think the difference lies, let's go with secular versus Christian, okay? Yep. So 50 years ago, secular folks not tossing chairs as much in regards to their passionate secular beliefs. But Christians, over some disputes within Christianity, much more willing to toss chairs. I think the relationship is inverse. And I think in 2019, what you'll find is that Christians of different denominations are much less likely to toss chairs, and yet secular folks, they're much more willing to toss chairs, again, for their secular beliefs. That's what I say. So what was that, Dan? I said, yeah, I was just agreeing. And so what, what that thing that you just said was uh, this generational idea that if someone disagrees with you, they're judging you. And I think that's a, a secular attitude that has been much more, uh, much more prominent over the past couple of years. If someone disagrees with you, either in any regard, then all of a sudden it's an, automatically ju- it's an automatic judgment without even saying... Uh, I'm judging you for believing this one thing. We see it in politics. We see it in spirituality. We see it on other every issue in society here, and that's kind of where we've gone. That is not a surprising statistic to me personally. Yeah, I, I wonder. Um, I don't question. You're right. I, I don't question the statistic. I question. I question the reality of it. Mm. To be honest, right? So, like, um, I think one of those things, uh, the thing that kind of causes that is the simple nature of how. Um, I, this is true for all generations at this point, I think, but like especially millennial and, and um, Gen X generations, is, is how we take in information. Um, I, I am more likely to be engaging with people who, whose reaction to disagreement is a form of judgment because a normal person wouldn't say anything. Like the, I, the truth is like the vast majority of people I know that I'm friends with, that I interact with on a normal basis, do not interact, do, don't use social media. And even if they do, I, I would rarely see an opinion from them. Because it's not helpful. It's not a valuable place to conduct the information, which means um, that that type of discourse is staying out of that platform because it doesn't find fruit. So what remains behind are people who where where disagreement equals judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think potentially misrepresents what reality is, uh, at least where those things are playing out. So like if that's the sure. only place if you only hang out at the playground where the bullies are, your perception is that. People are getting bullied everywhere. Yep. But the truth is, the bully, like the, the people who aren't starting fights, aren't hanging out where bullies are at. And so, it, like, um, I, I wonder if um, if that perception comes from um, just simply a, an overexposure to playgrounds that are that are filled with people who act like that. Yeah, and also, and I think that that point of social media is an important one because the world that we surround ourselves in, social media and news wise, is one that agrees with us also true yeah so when we when we are constantly bombarded with the same thing so whether you're watching this news channel or this news channel or another news channel you're bombarded with what you already agree with and so the second that someone disagrees with you it becomes a lot more personal than it did 30 years ago when everybody was getting this news from the same source that's right you're not sharing an, an, an op-ed space uh in the back of the newspaper with uh d- different groups of people like you've you've catered what you hear like here and, and even if it's not intentional like you mm-hmm. may not have gone on and said hey I only want to hear this type of news but like the if the thing's tracking you it knows what you like it knows the articles you choose and so it gives you more of that and so you do tend to get a narrow worldview um un, even if it's unintentional um and then when when something breaks into that uh it it does run the risk of it sounding um 
something that otherwise might have sparked a reasonable public discourse. Oh yes, now sounds Correct. like it's 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 putting a spear in your side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. Hmm. Yep. All right. So I, I so but based upon that reaction, I said I was disappointed that if someone disagrees with you, it means they're judging you. I mean, I suppose it's possible, but from a consequence, I like I don't know. I'm not sure what it matters. Like uh, th- that term's a little loaded anyway. Like, what does it mean to be judging? Obviously, if if you say something, uh, and I say, "Hey, that's wrong." I mean, yeah, I, there's a judgment in there. You've said something, and I've judged it incorrect. But like, that's how people conversate, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, I, th- there's a, there seems to be a, a load on people are judging me. Of which case, like, it's just a description of what is going on, and it's evaluation, if you like that word better. But, the, yeah, that, that is what they're doing, but that's how people take in the world. Yep. Do, I heard something. Do I agree with it? Do I not agree with it? And here's my reaction to such a thing. That's a normal human thing. That, we shouldn't, that shouldn't be a problem that someone would be judging us unless, like, uh, unless we're saying that we're concerned that I say something and they say, well, you believe that, then you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose if that's the case, that says very little ab- about me and way more about you. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. All right. Good stuff. Uh, so here we go. Let's see. Barna President David Kinneman uh, points to the rising cultural expectation against judging personal choices. Practicing Christian millennials were twice as likely as Gen X and four times as likely as boomers and elders to agree with the statement, if someone disagrees with you, it means they're judging you. He says, cultivating deep, steady, resilient Christian conviction is difficult in a world of you do you and don't criticize anyone's life choices and emotivism, the feeling's first priority that our culture makes a way of life. Uh, As much as ever, evangelism isn't just about saving the unsaved, but reminding ourselves that this stuff matters, that the Bible is trustworthy, and that Jesus changes everything. Several evangelicals' reactions to the Barner release pointed to the need for better Christian formation of younger churchgoers. I think they're overreacting to this. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, I feel like it's an overreaction to what's going on. Um, one of the things you got to be super careful with is, um, and this is dangerous. It makes the world difficult to navigate. And I think we're, we're, we're this has been pretty pervasive over the last twenty years. Um, is language changes? Language starts to shift on us. People start using uh, talking about concepts a little bit differently, and and the words don't just quite have the same connotation as they did. Um, and so you risk you risk reacting to a situation that I think maybe the, the Gen X crowd and the millennials aren't reacting to. Um, I think they are worried about like there, there there's a, there's a counter reaction to um, perhaps an overstep on um, uh, behaviorism uh, Christianity that, that, that focuses primarily on you, you walking through the steps and puppeting yourself in such a way that you, you will be acceptable to Jesus, which no one intended to put through, but like that's how they saw it. Um, and so I think there is, there is a, a higher focus. It's not a disregard for what people do, um, but I think there's a higher focus on what is the state of your mind, of your heart, and, and your intention of following Jesus um, and less about the exterior evaluation as an entry point. Now, I, so so I will say this. So I go to, um, I visit quite a few coffee shops for various meetings with people, and I will tell you those coffee shops are f- at at six o'clock in the morning, six thirty, are filled with guys my age, full of them, mm-hmm. and I would say eighty percent of them are in are in doing a Bible study of some sort or another. I mean. This isn't like a group of, of elder statesmen in the church. This isn't um, a high school youth group. Like, these are guys raising kids. I got four kids and a full-time job um, who are up at 6, 6.30 in the morning meeting guys uh, doing Bible studies. 
And so um, I, I think it is, it, is, it is not my experience that some of the reticence, or the, the reticence excuse me, in, um, in, in agreeing to the language that was proposed in the survey is, not exp- is expressing itself um, in ways that otherwise don't have people saying it matters what the Bible says, um, it is a true thing, it has an impact on my physical world and life, and I intend to follow it. That is not my experience dealing with people and being out in, the, in, in public in, interacting with folks my age, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's I think it's just a risk that you take um, where where I think there um, ge- there's generations that are reacting to certain language or implication, um, but you got to be real careful. There's there's nuances to what they're actually reacting to, um, and so to to look at say a millennial generation and be like, eh, they're lazy and they don't they don't they don't think evangelization it's wrong to evangelize, like that's the wrong takeaway here. And so I think you just got to be careful with how you react to that. Um, there's a, there was a few reactions here uh, from Billy Hallowell. He says, I'm a millennial, and this is pure evidence of the failure of the church to prepare youth to understand faith or speak out. Interesting. So back to that two-thirds thing. If, that, that's what I'm saying. I think you've got to be careful on how you react to this data. Beyond that, it's also a result of a cultural crisis of secularism bombarding us at every turn. Um, you can't pin the belief that evangelism is wrong on Facebook, distraction, disenchantment, or recession— uh, wrote Samuel James, a writer at First Things on Twitter. The data here strongly suggests that Christian millennials are being catechized by their colleges, not churches. Eh. Mm. I, I I can't get there. I, I think mm. those are I think those are um they, they I think they do exist. I think that people are catechized by their um by the nation the culture that surrounds them. I think you run the risk of not wanting to offend someone. Like no one wants to have to tell someone that like the way that they're living their life is is counter to what's good. Um, that's a hard conversation regardless of your generation. Um, but loving people enough to tell them is, I still think a quality thing. And I just, um, I, I think what is changing, it, what is changing is the willingness for those generations of people to interject behavioral, um, guidelines against people with whom they do not agree on the basis of truth of the guidelines themselves. So are less likely to go up to a group group of people and say, hey, look, you need to change your life because uh, Jesus says you're not supposed to act that way to groups of people who don't know Jesus. They're like my experience is that they are primarily concerned about introducing you to Jesus so that you agree on the authority of such a thing so that um, mm-hmm. what you then what then Jesus speaks matters to you. Whereas I think uh, it, it's potential that um, we were trying to change people's lives with good Christian teaching to people who didn't care about the source of it. And so I, I, that probably is true. I, in fact, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that. I, you, of course, you run the risk of, of, of missing the point um, either direction too far, um, but I, I, don't, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. It mentioned the, sexual, uh, the cultural crisis of secularism bombarding us at every turn, says uh, Billy Hallowell there in, yep. your, in your quote in your article there. And I don't know. I think, uh, I think it's almost... Uh, we were talking about how the flow of generation moves, you know, the time moves along and then people change over time. But it's almost like young Christians are like 20 years behind the game here because, you know, in the 1990s, secularism was much more, I'm okay, you're okay, everyone's okay. But that doesn't strike me as the attitude of secularism in 2019. The attitude of secularism feels more today to me like, I'm okay and you're not okay. Yes. And therefore, this like millennial Christians who were in their 20s and early 30s and things like that, this concept that they are kind of in a space where I'm okay, 
you're okay, and I'm not going to be judging you about Christianity. Sure, I like Jesus, I love Jesus, and eventually I want you to have Jesus, but I'm not going to push hard on Jesus for you because there's still this secularism for 20, 30 years ago saying, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay, but that's not the secularism of 2019. So I'm, I don't know if maybe 20 years from now, if we're really lagging behind the culture, maybe we'll get to a place where we are pushy again, and then there'll be a lot of pushy people. I'm okay, and you're not okay if we have a secular nature, of, a cyclical nature of this. So I don't know. Tough to say. I think that conversation will be forced, to be honest with you. Like, I think, um, to your mm-hmm. point, where secularism continues to become emboldened, mm-hmm. um, it, it'll push you to a line. Like, like there's certain cultural things that are showing up. I mean, they've been, they've been showing up forever, but, like, as the tide starts to turn, they start making... Um, uh, deeper distinctions, and and I, and Christianity will um, and followers of Jesus will have to answer for them. Um, our our general. So as an example, um, I think there has been some passivity about uh, abortion. I think you have, I think you have groups of Christians who are very strong, uh, Catholics especially, actually, um, mm-hmm. about the the protecting the sanctity of life. And then I think you've got you've got a bunch of middle ground folks who are like, eh, you know, that's just a that's a pretty loud thing to weigh in on. I, maybe I'm just not going to, maybe I won't speak to it. Like we had the freedom of not speaking to it. Um, and I'm not sure that we've, um, that was good. I'm not sure that's a positive. Um, and, I, and frankly, I think the, the, the trend there will continue to press that um, to, to where we have to be able to call things at their core. Um, uh, they will be, what we, what we believe or think will ultimately be forced to be laid bare. Um, and I don't know that that's a bad thing. Like we, we don't need, um, we're not direct of, of people who have a better way of marketing Christianity. We're, we're direct of Christians, like core people who love and follow Jesus, who are passionate about it and who love other people. Um, like that's, that's largely been the, been the gap there is, um, we don't need people who are, who are kind of just, just trained to go out and sell the product. We need people mm-hmm. who believe and live the thing, um, and that's compelling. It's a strong, like the, the the thing that will draw people to Christ are people actually following Christ. And so, um, I think that I think that will continue to press itself. I'd be surprised if in within twenty to thirty years you're not finding um, uh, that it is it is even like explicitly culturally unacceptable to believe in the core tenets of Christianity. Um, and frankly, I think that's the time of, of when you see a, a positive momentum and people actually coming to meet Jesus. Um, when there's nothing left to hide but, behind but the good news and Jesus himself. Um, let's see here. Let's, let's see if there's anything else good here. Da, da, da. Younger folks are tempted to... Well, hold on. What's, I'll read the last two paragraphs here. But evangelism remains a sticky point among a 21st century crowd which sees tent revivals and tracks as a thing of the past. You see, if that's your comparison, I feel like that's a risk. <laughs> like, hey, we're not doing... We're not, like, they don't want to do it. Like, if, if they say... It'd be wrong to say they don't want to do tent revivals and pass and handing out tracts, so they believe evangelism is dead. It seems like a misdefinition of it, anyway. Um, evangelism is often presented as an old school, out of style idea with little value or relevance in our fast paced urban world, wrote Hannah Gronowski, the founder and director of Generation Distinct for the exchange last year. Younger folks are tempted to believe instead if we just live good enough lives, we can forego the conversation entirely. And people around us will almost magically come to know Jesus through our good actions and selfless character. She said, this style of evangelism is becoming more and more prevalent in a culture constantly looking for the fast track and simple fix. So I don't, 
again, I, I think that's it's a it's it's a bit of an unfair characterization because the truth is is that like if you live good enough lives, um, I, I I think that I think there is good news communicating through what you do. But if it's if it's focused completely on yourself, then yeah, they're not going to catch it, right? Like I, like there's an expression the the, the core. Even the even the core nature of resurrection is a physical existence. It says you you live in some way or another and do things. It's not a mind. It's not a, a mind belief. It's not a heart thing. Um, it is an expression. It's a holistic understanding of what it is to live and follow Jesus. Jesus as a as a physical being, even. And so, um, I think there's very much like you you run the opposite risk that says, look, I don't. I'll tell everyone about. Jesus, but it's not reflected in my life versus someone who says, look, I'm going to do everything Jesus asked me to do uh, and be faithful in that. And then people will come to know him. I actually do believe that, but it required like part of being faithful to Jesus is actually loving people enough and telling him about and telling them about it. Yeah, yeah, right. And so so like I I think it's um, it's not an either or distinction, but like um, I I think you could live on a basic principle that says I'm going to love and follow Jesus and do what he does, which includes uh, serving and loving and telling people good news. It's all kind of bundled up in that kind of thing. Um, and I don't think it's magic. I think the gospel will do its own work, just like I think preaching the Bible will do its own work. Um, but I, Which is different than to say, hey, I did a focused thing by standing out on a street corner and saying these words. That actually turns the gospel into some sort of potion mm. uh, or magic thing that, that I can just abracadabra. If I say these things, it will grab somebody. We're actually losing that art form. People are not surprised. They're not even taking in casual conversation like that. Um, and so this goes back to the thing I didn't want to miss. So there's a there's a crisis in uh, corporate America, similar to what um, I think is playing itself out in churches. Um, so what they, they did a they did a study and what they found that like uh, millennials are not interested in corner offices, like they don't care that the things that 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 um, corporations um, that used to be seen as like this is what winning looks like, this is what achievement is. Uh, millennials are entering the, the the job market and they're going I don't I don't really, I don't really care about that. Mm. And and the the truth is is like they they look at it and the core things that they want is that they want to they want the work they do to matter and they want it to feel like it makes a difference and so things that we used to do um, so so churches can run the risk of trying to build um, good habitual work hey um, to to be to be a good Christian um, you you should come here and then you should join and do the classes that we offer and here's a few things other things that you can do and can you get in good habits related to corporate function. And uh, millennials are not, um, from a church perspective, aren't running away from good habits. They're asking that they mean something. And, and here's the cool thing is that th- a lot of church habits do mean something. It's good. They're good things. Um, but like, but they, they're introduced to them in such a way that they feel like they're just going through motions. And the same thing is true in corporate America. So corporate America, especially if you look in, in, in kind of like white-collar work, um, a lot of times you don't measure success correctly. Um, they, they, you, you run the risk of saying, hey, we're going to do a project. We're going to launch a product. Um, we're going to improve efficiency. Like pick three buckets of things that corporate America is always doing regardless of the industry. And um, you cheer the fact that something was completed. Hey, we released updates to the software once a quarter. Hey, we, our sales numbers went up by 10%, blah, blah, blah. And so the thing is, is that like um, this was something that otherwise um, made – uh, a lot of corporate America like, happy, like, like we were going through the motions, we were succeeding in doing the work we were given, and so that was sufficient. Millennials are entering the workspace and saying, "No, th- like I, I see that this is what you want to accomplish, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't mm-hmm. actually improve the world. 
It doesn't help anybody. We're not, we don't want to do it. Um, and so they're becoming dissatisfied with the work. And so I think the risk is, is that you look at millennials and go, they're lazy. They don't want to do the work. They're lazy. They don't want to come to the thing that we set up. They don't want to go through these motions. But like they're actually, a lot of times they're asking what is a hard, but ultimately a right question, which is, are we a part of something that is actually doing something? Is it making a difference? Their sense of measurement is much different. The amount of measurement um, ability that sits within a millennial generation is markedly more than what you were capable of measuring 40 years ago. Like, and they're used to seeing measurements and asking those types of questions. And so, um, yes, they could be a lazy generation. I think there are aspects of the, that, that are also true. They have high expectations about entering something and how they're treated. But like, um, and I, I've noticed that in corporate America as well. But I will say that like, the motivation to come in and say, boy, we want to be part of something that matters. Does this really matter? Not just because someone said to do it, not because we've been doing it for 30 years, but like, is, does this actually make a difference to things that we care about and can we be a part of it? Um, those are good questions. And I think it, it, is, it is a mistake for both churches and corporate America alike to look at those things and say, um, look, we want to mold you into this, into this thing, into the way that we've always done it and try to convince you that the corner office really is the right gig. Whereas um, like the, the, the question of what is the core value that we're trying to obtain is a good question, and, it, and it, it helps to refine work that's being done, and I think it's good. And so I think that's the risk, frankly, we run in both areas um, of not accepting that and, and, and using that for the value that it could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just different priorities for different generations. For a baby boomer who was born in 1950 here, their parents would have gone through the Great Depression, which means when they're thinking about what's important to them, uh, they're still, they still have a slice of survival within them. They right. just think because they grew up with parents who knew what survival was because they were living through World War II. Generation Xers, they're a little further removed from it because now their grandparents were the ones who survived the Great Depression, so the slice is smaller. But now we're three generations in to a post-1945 prosperity in the United States of America, which means if that little slice of, I have to survive, I have to survive, has been getting smaller and smaller and smaller as the years have gone by, now we have millennials who'd be like, survival's not enough anymore. What else are we going to do? We need more than just survival. And since we need more than survival, what else... What else has meaning if we're past survival? We're past, you know, in Maslow's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we are well above the base stage of survival. Right. And, and that's when it opens up to so many more ideas about, well, what can we do about this? What can we do this? That's why among young Christians, I think social justice is like a bigger thing than it was a previous generation, a previous generation, a previous generation ago. Just because, I mean, to put it bluntly, it's almost like they they have more time. With uh, I was just paying bills the other night, and I was realizing how hard was it, Dan Hudson? How hard was it to pay bills in the 1980s? Uh, you mean like to have the money, or just the process? No, it seems I'm like a lot of work. The process, it, it was a lot, yeah, and there, there was writing checks and <laughs> doing envelopes and licking stamps, and yeah, it was. Uh, I feel like I wouldn't have paid anything. Yeah, I wouldn't do it. Maybe that's just us millennials, Ben Foost. But that you're we, lazy. Yeah. We, we, yes. Here's the thing. So that, that's what it is, though. Is it like I look at it like, boy, that's just un, that's un, unwieldy. All this, all this check writing business. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> but, but then again, so like now that you've dispensed with the basic things, you look around and say, what am I to do with myself? Something that matters. Whereas it, there's a sense of stability. I, that's the thing. Is that like there's a blindness to it too. There's a blindness because you're living. 
uh, my generation is living off the stability that was created in the generations before. And without actually owning some of it, we now grow weary of the stability. <laughs> and we wish, to, we, we wish to use the freedom that we have in a good way. Now, see, here the thing is that's a positive thing. It says, with the time and resources that we seem to have and the not worrying about basic, stable things broadly as a generation, we say, what else good can we do? There's a very positive thing about that. I don't think there's any reason to continue to, to lament over the years gone by uh, and to live in fear of that. But there's also a real uh, – there's a risk of, of losing it completely. Um, this is why you have, you have uh, social justice warriors living in their parents' basement. And so, like, there's a, hey, I don't worry about stability. Someone else will provide it for me so that I may care about this thing. I think both are good. The, 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 the concept of – that goes back to the corporate America thing is if you think um, – uh, the, the corner office was a was a sense of stability, like you worked your way up. It was it was um, it was evidence that you were consistent and that you delivered. And the corner office was the one that didn't move. You 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 stayed there and you could be there for a long time. Um, most of the uh, people in 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 uh, in my generation, like uh, they're job hoppers. They'll move every three to five years. And so if like if I step back from that and I say, hey man, why can't you just stay? Why aren't you just staying? That is a value that I place um, probably oddly within my generation that like most of them don't. They're like, what is, what is the sense of commitment? Uh, and the things that were, that were drove stability um, don't really exist anymore. The promise of a pension, of a company being around mm -hmm. forever to provide you some sense of retirement. Mm -hmm. You know, like um, you're, you're better off chasing benefits company to company. You're better off get, by the, 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 the best way to get a raise is to move is to go to a different company. Like, you will almost never get the same pay bumps staying with the same company. It doesn't work that way. They'll continue to give you raises, but they'll be um, measly relative to moving to a different job somewhere else, even if it's the same position. Like, it'll always be more. And so that's what they do. Um, and it's a different value system. And I think you got to be careful at saying one's inherently right or wrong. Um, frankly, I see value in, in both of them. And I think there's something you can learn from both of the, of the thought processes um, and I think the biggest risk we run is cutting one off and saying, um, like, that's completely misguided. It's not misguided to say, um, we've got time and resources. How then shall we do the most good in the world? Um, following in the footsteps of Jesus, we expect it to matter. Like, yeah, that's great. Um, could, can you forsake that um, on the opposite side of saying, of just relying on the stability of someone else? Like, that's not good either. But, like, I, I think you just got to be careful. I, I think there's um, – we run risk about closing off and thinking that, like, whole generations of people are thinking wrongly. They're reacting to something, and they're trying to point somewhere, and there's certainly things that the, that the world can learn from it. And the church can learn from it. Uh, yeah. And, and just how you deal with different ages of people, different groups of people here, because, as it turns out, people are different. Yeah, Imagine. Yeah, right on. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. One of the – one of the, the, the probably the, a big miss – was as this generation started to come up um, that we weren't ready for it. This is true in corporate America again and churches. Um, like if you'd have seen this coming, um, what an awesome springboard. You got groups of people who are like, I want to be out doing something and I want to do something that matters. Um, and if you've been prepared for that well, um, for things for them to do without them having to try to, like, they, we, like we mock them. They go out and find it themselves and we're like, oh, look at you. We, we don't even know if you're solving legit problems. But like if you prepared people for that, um, you probably have like, like one heck of an energized group of people um, focusing on the right types of things. And, and instead, like lacking guidance, they, they identify what they believe are their own problems, which may not, be, may not hol holistically be correct. 
right? They're not getting a full picture to identify what problems they actually could be helping solve. Um, and so that's probably something that we can we can continue to kind of do better at. All right. Good. We're done with that one. Uh, uh, let's go to this one. This is from the Christian Post. Liberal Lutheran pastor melts purity rings into vagina sculpture, presents it to Gloria Steinem. Finally. <laughs> Liberal Lutheran pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber unveiled a sculpture of a vulva made entirely of old purity rings to protest evangelical purity culture and presented to a pro-abortion second-wave feminist, Gloria Steinem. Boltz-Weber, the founding pastor of Denver's House for All Sinners and Saints, showed off the sculpture, which was made by melting down the old jewelry during the 2019 Makers Conference last week. Every single thing and person that seems so powerful and inescapable, I name them and then I just go footnote, Boltz-Weber told conference attendees. I mean, seriously, Pontius Pilate, he's a footnote. Your bully from middle school, footnote. Your depression, footnote. Your... Let's all say stupid. She said the S word. Boss. Footnote. All those things are very real, and the harm that they have on us in the world is also real. But to me, the whole point of having faith is it allows us to believe in a bigger story than the one we tell ourselves. Those purity rings are a footnote, she declared, unveiling the sculpture. The rings we couldn't melt down spell out the word freedom and were woven into this heart. Isn't it amazing, she said while presenting the sculpture to Steinem amid audience applause. In some evangelical circles, purity rings, also known as promise or chastity rings, were given to young girls as symbols of a promise they made to abstain from sexual activity until marriage. The controversial pastor, who has defended the use of so-called ethically sourced porn, first announced her art project at 2018 Makers Conference, where she explained she wants to take down the church's teaching around sex and evangelical purity culture. This thing about women that the church has tried to hide and control, and that is a canvas on which other people can write their own righteousness. It's actually ours, she told the Huffington Post. This part of me is mine, and I get to determine what is good for it and, it's, and if it's beautiful and how I use it in the world. She then put out a call on Twitter asking any woman who no longer used their purity rings to donate them to her for use in the, sculpt- in the sculpture. In exchange for donating the ring, the pastor said she would give each person a copy of her new book, Shameless, A Sexual Reformation, in which she argues that the church teaching on sexuality has caused harm to many people. According to a video posted on Makers Conference website, the response was overwhelming, with hundreds of women sending in their rings. One female welder agreed to make the sculpture after five men refused, claims the video. Oh, that'd be kind of difficult. Hey, we need mm. you to make a vulva out of this thing. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> uh, I, I... Uh... I don't know, Dan. This stood out for you. What stood out? <laughs> what caught your eye here? <laughs> well, to me, I, I guess it's just the... How well? What we were talking about earlier. The, the, you know, how about open up your Bible? You know, here here's a church that needs. A, a, here's a. I guess she's calling herself a pastor of a church uh, that um, is just teaching falsely. Uh, um, now you can argue on the different you know aspects of of how far you go with purity and stuff like that. I guess, but but not too far. I mean, the scripture's pretty plain on it. You know, and and she always tries to push the envelope and. Uh, it's my, my understanding of this gal. She's she's pretty off uh, with with a lot of doctrinal stances. So it just it it's, it, was sad. it breaks my heart as a father of two daughters with purity rings who took them very seriously. Uh, that, uh, that she's celebrating sexual immorality, really. Yeah, it's it's too bad. Um... Like she had said in the in the article, she the, the the interview, she said, "This part of me is mine, and I get to determine what is good for it." 
and if it's beautiful and how I use it in the world. And here's the thing, that's 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 not just not true. Right. And and not even related like um in a, in a grand like that's not even true about me as an individual. Uh I am I don't get to determine what is good for it. Mm-hmm. Uh I'm not trustworthy to do that. Um uh, my sense of what is good and not good is is suspicious. Um and I don't I think I think I think that's just a um I think anybody that can't admit that is 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 just not living in reality. Like just the the, the very nature of the choices you've made like unless you've lived a a perfect life or you've never made a choice that you regret like you you have to at least at least cop to the fact that like there's something in you that is not always capable of of identifying what is good that's how we learn lessons right like something you do something wrong and then you recognize that that, that it was good and so um the subject or the standard then of what is good or is not good has to if it if it's up to if it's up to individuals um then fine this is this is true um but if in the presence of a holy God um, who has actually gone through the process of saying this is what is actually good, and mm-hmm. to the extent that you do not fall in line with that, like you run the risk of, of doing something that God said wasn't good. Uh, and like he wouldn't tell you to do it if it wasn't good. Like that's kind of the nature of him knowing the difference. And so like I, I, I get the – I'm trying to see if there's something I can sympathize with here. Like – uh, it's too bad that this is that frankly this movement was focused primarily on ladies. To be honest, like I don't mm-hmm. know unless I'm missing it, Dan. Did, did, was there a, was there a dude element to this? I don't believe so. Uh, no, 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 and that's too bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's that's a significant miss. Um, to to um, in, in fact, any any thought um, that says um, the ladies on defense here, um, and and that this is not a guy's responsibility to not only maintain and protect his honor, but the honor of any woman he intends to deal with. Um, that's a significant miss. And uh, here's, but here's here's the thing: is that like it's very possible that the church is attempted to do this, and men just ain't grabbing it. Uh, but ladies will be like, "Yes, I, I actually want to be faithful to this thing," and so they're more willing to grab onto a movement like this. I've, that wouldn't surprise me one bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the, the thing is, is um, yeah, I, I guess if I roll if I roll it all up. Um, do I believe that what God says is good in the world is intended to be a shackle um, or an elevation? And it would be the second. Like, if I believe it is a shackle, then that's, then that's what you're, you're going to end up with a vulva sculpture uh. and it to another lady. Um, but I, I look at the laws of God and say these are good. Uh, these are good because he says they're good and he's created them for our good. Um, and it is in my best interest to adhere to them. Um, and to the, that extent, like, I here's here's what you do. So, um, has anybody been to the Grand Canyon? Yep. No. Wait, who yeah. said yeah? Yes, I have. Okay, Greg's been there. Okay, Grand Canyon. <laughs> uh, do they have? Do they let you just? Um, there's like viewing areas, right? Yeah. With rails. Uh, I mean, the official viewing areas, of course, have rails. It's got guardrails on it. In fact, they build something at the at the Grand Canyon that like extends over the canyon that you can kind that's of walk. The glass at. bottom. Yeah. Thing that's yeah. So there's rails on it, right? On yeah, on that part especially, yes. Yeah, so so right, like so it, with good intention, they said, "Look, here's here's how you can enjoy life, but stay within the rails." Yeah, and no one looks at the rail standing over the Grand Canyon and walks against it and goes, "What is this crap? <laughs> <laughs> what is this shackle that doesn't allow me to live how I want to live? I should be able to do what I want, including walking off this this platform." Mm-hmm. Like no one thinks of it that way because they believe that it is protecting them, that it was put there with wise thought. Uh, and that it ultimately is right, and they can look at the wisdom of it and say, yep, you know what, it's a pretty good idea that they put that there, otherwise I might accidentally harm myself. 
Uh, and God's laws are that. They're that thing right there. And so um, the, 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 it says, hey, yeah, it's, it's your body, and it was created to do really cool and good things and to feel good and to do good and to produce miracles. And this is how you take care of it. This is how you treat it. This is how other people are to treat it. In fact, you, you can only engage it with one person. Um, and if you do it in this context, it will do all those things for you, and you will, it will be the right experience. That's what it's intended. Um, that's not a, I don't look at that as a shackle. It's a guardrail that says, look, this, these are good and beautiful things. Let me, here's how you use them well. Here's how you're part of that thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, is, it, is it true that um, people have taken that proper concept and, and probably used it in a restrictive way? Yeah, I, I don't doubt that. People are sinful and wrong. I, but it doesn't stop. It doesn't mean that the core thing that says God laws, God's laws are good, God's intention for humanity is good, and if he puts restrictions or direction on us, it is for our good, um, that simply is not a shackle. And so, like, I fundamentally would disagree um, with those things. So to the extent that you found something of which people are, are teaching or restricting outside of the Bible, well, great, then you have a Pharisee problem. Jesus called the same thing out. I didn't make a Volvo statue out of it. I, that's, that's, uh, I'm mm-hmm. confused at how things ended up over there. But, like, um, we if, all are. if you're rebelling, <laughs> if there's a rebellion against uh, man-made restrictions— that God did not put in place, great, you're joining Jesus' revolution. Congratulations. You, you have a friend in the Lord. <laughs> uh, and, like, I'm in. I'm in with that. I'm, in, I'm totally in with it. But, like, any time that you're then, you change that and then rebel against the Lord and somehow prescribe that your view of the world is better than his, I, it's an obvious, it's a clear and obvious myth. Mm-hmm. There's, a lot, there's a lot of things you were just saying. Uh, number one, <laughs> a lot of things. Number one, uh, the idea that this uh, in the '90s or whatever, that the purity ring or the purity movement was focused on ladies alone. That's that's not good. That's not good at all. Yeah. Because I have uh, I have daughters and sons. Yep. And so do you, Dan. You only had daughters, so uh, that's all I care about. There you go. That's, all <laughs> I that, that, that's it, not true because I I want them to yeah. to date of right. men who are pure. Right. Yeah. But this concept that, oh, no, this is the lady's responsibility is really, really off base. Yeah. And it's just, it's just not good. The, the article you m- mentioned, uh, Joshua Harris' book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Kiss Dating Goodbye. Yep. Uh, this past year, Joshua Harris has come out and apologized and said, mm-hmm. yeah, I made a mistake. Yep. There's a lot of, and I think what you described, Ben, was people are going, taking this way, 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 way too far. I think there's some guidelines set for the Bible that are pretty simple that uh, that are pretty straightforward, and yet the idea that people have taken a pharisaical turn uh, and and really really emphasized this uh, this like above and beyond extreme kind of nature of this of this purity rule, I, I think it's been taken too far, and, and in many ways it's probably been kind of harmful. And but isn't that what we've seen over the last twenty years, thirty years? Just this idea of the sex obsessed society. Sexual obsession, sexual obsession. Everyone's obsessed with sex. Everyone's obsessed with everything dealing with sex and sex and sex and sex and sex, right? And it shouldn't be too surprising that on maybe the pro-sex and the anti-sex side of things, there are extremes and there are extremes. And what used to be like, hey, oh, you, you want to you wanna wait till marriage? I respect that. That's fine. That, that's fine. It seems like this lady is going on the opposite side. Like, no, that's not fine. It's not only... Not only is uh, it not fine, we need to actually mold something fairly, I don't know, I don't 
necessarily call it an idol, but the idea that you are crafting something out of metal and then presenting to someone. I don't know. I'm not a big fan. That part's weird to me. I'm not a big fan of crafting things, uh, symbols out of metal, and then handing this symbolic thing to someone else who is symbolic and making a big statement out of it here. It seems like this pastor lady, uh, she also apparently is obsessed with sex. Yeah. In, In the counter version, but she's very obsessed with sex. And I don't think any sort of obsession with sex is healthy for our society. It's not good. If we're talking about a sexually obsessed society as a whole, that's going to lead to bad places. It's going to lead to bad places on so many regards. And yet this lady, in almost being so anti-sex, she's becoming even more obsessed with maybe the people who she's fighting against. And and then uh, it just seems to me like she just wants to be on the news. Mm-hmm. That's it. Seems very attention getting. Yeah, like to 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 put forth her message, um, of that that this purity movement was wrong. Okay, I see yeah, where she's right. coming for that. But that's not what she's doing. She's she's doing that, but then she's going above and beyond, and it feels like that above and beyond is totally for attention. And so what I see is uh is someone who is, uh, despite what she says, also very obsessed with sex. And sex in the culture, but also really, really wants to be well-known. That's what it seems like to me. Yeah, I agree. I can't, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to think, sorry, this is what's going through my mind. I'm trying to think in what, in what way I would feel honored if someone gave me a statue <laughs> with two testicles on it. Like, I can't, I... I just I can't I can't figure it out. It'd be tougher though with that though, only because uh, the specific situation at hand. I think what she's trying to say is that this purity movement has actually oppressed women more than it's oppressed men, and so therefore the same thing for men probably wouldn't apply as no, no, much. Yeah, no, I understand that. I'm just thinking, like in general, of all the oh, things yeah. you could make the statue of, mm-hmm. like I can't think of a circumstance in which it would feel appropriate, and I would be proudly proud to receive. A set of testicles. Here you go, Ben. Here's two golf balls. What do you think? <laughs> I don't feel like I, I. I think maybe this emphasizes your point, right? Like you could have done you, you could have done this with just about anything. There's lots of things that represent. I, it almost feels diminishing to say, um, like this is the thing we decided to craft. Because there's four aspects. Number one, I want to collect a lot of purity rings. Okay, uh-huh. actually, no. Uh, there's uh there's five aspects. Number one, I want to collect a lot of purity rings. Yep. Number two, I'm gonna sell you or give you a copy of my book. I think that's a big part of it too. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, uh yeah. Uh number three, we're going to melt these down. Okay. Number four, we are going to craft uh a part of the female reproductive system. Yep. And then number five, we are going to present this to a woman who, as far as I know, is not a part of any Christian community. I'm not sure about that. But, and, and so that's, that's five big things that tell me this is not just about, uh, eh, this purity movement wasn't the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Man. A lot of stuff. Boy. Okay. Well, uh, hey, maybe you got some thoughts on that. Uh, maybe we've said wrong things and you would like to enlighten us, uh, or you agree completely. Uh, either way, it's called the appropriately named complaint line. That's 515-517-0085. That's call or text 
515-517-0085. That is the live from the Path Complaint Line. I check that thing faithfully whenever I show up to the show. So just so you know, uh, I will almost always respond back to you, but uh, I, only, I only check it right before we come on the air here. So, you know, just uh, don't feel bad. But uh, shoot us something. Let us know. Sure. Um, all right, real quick, let's do a Dear Life from, uh, Dear Life from the Path. Dear Life from the Path. I've been reading your uh, advice and uh, for, for a very long time. I'm an attractive 65-year-old woman. I have no problem meeting men. I have been told numerous times I look 20 years younger than my age. Mm. The problem is, if I hear another man tell me how beautiful I am, I may go ballistic. I want a man to appreciate me for my intellect and my personality. I thought when I was past 50, I would no longer have to hear about my looks. I want a man to appreciate the person I am inside, not outside. I don't wear makeup, and I don't dress up. What does an old lady do to get a man to appreciate her for her brain and not her looks? Sincerely, Jane Mansfield. Wait, wait. Now, what was uh, the opening sentence? I've been reading, uh, let's see, I've been reading your advice for decades. Well, okay, the second one. I am an attractive 65-year-old woman. I mean, she's talking about it. (laughs) She does seem to be focused on it. I love the confidence. (laughs) Strong, confident woman of 65 who is really... Uh, just attractive, according to her. Confident. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, what is she, she says, I, I, I want to move to something, uh, I want deeper reactions from fellas. What do I do? Uh, I guess I'd like to know the context where she's meeting these fellas. Uh. Let's play this out, shall we, gentlemen? Yeah, yeah. All right. So, uh, a gentleman meets her. He finds where, her attractive. Where are they at? Hey. Uh, they are at an outdoor mall in Florida. Okay. I'm going to say... I'm going to guess it's in Florida. There's not an address of this place. And they're this. both there um, individually. They're both there, and then he sees her across the crowded outdoor mall and says, hey. Is she eating yogurt? Um, low fat. After all, she's uh, trying to keep her. Yeah. <laughs> no, she's not. Oh, she, she's, she does not care. Oh, she doesn't care at all. You're right. She can't help. She's beautiful. Full fat. So at this point, they engage in a date, and uh, I would say to, uh, what is her name again? What is... Uh, what are we looking at here? Uh, what's called Jane Mansfield. Jane Mansfield, that's right. So we're looking at Jane Mansfield. I would say to Jane, look, uh, you got a fellow on the date. This is the opportunity. So you want to prove that you're not vapid? Then I think this is a great opportunity to prove how deep you are. And if, uh, for lack of a better term, your attractiveness got uh, the butts in the seats, now that they're in there, Go ahead and make the most of your opportunity and demonstrate that you are indeed deep, that you are indeed intelligent, that you are indeed... As far as I can tell, the entire package. Yeah, yeah. All, all right. So, so maybe perhaps to expand upon Greg's uh, point here. Sure. Um, in your example, how does he notice her? He doesn't look across the mall and go, "What a personality!" Can't tell. It, right, it, right. It, like yeah. he can't. Yep. So reasonably, like any time you engage, with, like with a man comes up to you, he's doing so because he found you attractive in some way or another. Step if one. it's if it's a stranger. Okay, and so if you say, I want a man to appreciate me for my intellect and my personality, it costs time. And, like, that's totally reasonable. Um, But, like, it's unreasonable to think that uh, you're going to find some sort of engagement with someone that you don't already know that isn't at least initially kicked off uh, by a reaction to your physical appearance. It's uh, it's not your physical appearance isn't separated from your intellect and personality. It's a part of your it's a part of you. And so, like. Yes, that, that is what, what, what might draw him 
uh, or draw his attention. It doesn't mean he's not capable of, of appreciating your intellect and personality, but, like, he has not witnessed it yet. So everything that he's taken in so far, he likes. He probably is game for more, uh, th- but that will take time. And so without – you've not provided enough details here, I suppose, to say, like, are you dating a man for six months? And he's like, huh, 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 I still just love how you look. I mean, okay, then stop going out with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the one who's vapid. Yeah, yeah but, like, I mean, you got to give a guy a chance here. Um, and maybe he's just being nice, and he doesn't know how to compliment you because he doesn't know you at all yet, so he says what he knows. Yeah, like, how creepy would it be? He's like, hey, I, I saw you from across the way here at the mall, and I love your mind. Like, yeah, yeah. weird. I see the way you do those crossword puzzles. See, you have Sudoku. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I, I think there's another solution. I think at hand, gentlemen. I think that solution is uh, blind dates yeah. or pen pal dates. We start a re- relationship in that way. Go on online dating website. Don't put a picture. There's options out there for pictureless online dating. I don't trust that. Well, she clearly believes that this might be the thing to do, and so online pictureless dating. And then what happens is you begin uh, a verbal relationship, not a verbal, a written relationship because you're almost like pen pals, exchanging, 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 and then eventually they meet up, but you've already established a relationship based on intellectual uh, capabilities and whatnot. So, All right, this isn't going to play well, but like, could you just try to date a blind guy? Is that wrong? I, Is that wrong to say looking for a blind fella? I believe all people deserve the chance for love. I mean, I, th- I feel like that's the solution. Yeah. If this is a big enough problem for you, uh, I'm sure there's some singles uh, who have that affliction <laughs> or empowerment, however you want to think about it. Anything's possible. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. So our advice is to cut the, cut the guy some slack, give him a chance to know your intellect and personality, or uh, go you switch to online dating uh, and take the physical out of it, or yep. date a blind guy. These all seem reasonable to me. Uh, Secular says, please cut these poor would-be suitors some slack until they get to know the person you are inside. What else would you expect them to say to ingratiate themselves? All right. You've been blessed with good looks, an asset most women would welcome. Stop complaining and appreciate what you have. If you do, you will be an even more beautiful woman inside. Well, all right. All right. Here we go. Last one. Dear Life from the Path, my wife and I are having a debate. Mm. A married woman is out of town by herself and meets a man two nights in a row for drinks. Over the next few months, she talks to him several times on the phone, and then one night he calls her at 9.30 after she is already in bed and tells her he's in town. So she gets up, gets dressed, drop-dead gorgeous, takes off, and meets him. She sits in his truck for an hour, kissing and hugging, no sex or intimate touching. All of this is without her husband's knowledge. Did this woman have an affair? Um... Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. Yep. Cross the board. I think it's uh, besides saying that's that's just one of those things where it's like, oh, well, we only kissed. No, 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 no. That's kind of a big deal. So not only is there physical, there's an emotional element. This is an emotional affair as well. Yeah. I think that's I think that's incredibly important too. So yes. Yeah. Most definitely. Yes. Yes. I wonder who's I wonder who's on the debate side here. My wife and I are having a debate. Is this, uh, no, no, never mind. <laughs> I, I, I was wondering if it's Bill and Hillary, but it seems like uh, it'd be the opposite. So right, ne- never right. Mind. Yeah. It is just curious in Georgia. All right. Uh, so any other, no, yeah, I think that's a clear cut. Yeah, yeah. you're crossed I... all kinds of lines. Yeah, yeah, no, you can't do that. 
the, the things, uh, yeah, if it helps to, to more easily define affairs, like there are things that you are permitted uh, or that belong, actions uh, and behavior that belongs to your spouse to the extent that you share those with someone else, you are having an affair. Yeah, the... Uh I think I think what people might question of is the is the meeting a man two nights in a row for drinks. I don't know. Uh, people people might argue about that point a little bit more, but even still, that seems like a couple of dates with this random fella. Uh, yeah. Uh, here's the deal: is that you go out on two drinks, uh, two nights with one guy, and yep. you didn't, and your husband does not know. Yep. That's an affair. There it is. You're yeah, it wasn't a business meeting. It was a no, yeah, yeah. This is not business. That's that. It does not say that it was business here. And I think that's what people argue about because what I think about with that, I think of the Pence rule. That has been that has been talked about quite a bit, where Vice President Mike Pence refuses to meet a woman for drinks mm-hmm. or something like that. I can't remember what it is exactly, and I was like, and people argue about that. It's, oh, well, you're just limiting career options of women. It's like, and so I can't remember if alcohol has to be involved, but anyway, that's probably a different debate. Uh, we'll leave it alone. All right, we're across the board. Uh, let's see, Secular says, yep, and it may have started when she met him when she was out of town. Even if there was no sex act, plenty of intimate physical contact was happening, and that's what I'd classify as infidelity. Yep. There we go. Hey, man. That's weird, though. We're usually not in line with secular uh, twice in a row. I figured secular would say, how about we take these purity rings, melt them, <laughs> and make a statue? <laughs> Set up a, let's, let's, let's do a, a seventh grade anatomy class and then uh, move on with our lives. A hood ornament for the truck. Which oh, business was going on? Holy cats! A hood ornament for the truck. Uh, what are you? Are you talking? Are you talking about putting a Volvo on the truck? I was saying any hood ornament, but I suppose that would be odd. Well, yeah, yeah, that would be odd. I've seen other things off the back of a truck. Uh, no, yeah. that's true. Yeah, that's true. So, I don't understand that either. Uh, no, no, Dan, did you do that on your truck? No, oh. no, no. Did I mean did it go go through your mind? Never. No, I didn't. Yeah, no. It's not yeah. Okay. I think that's it. I think that's, <laughs> I think what a great ending here. I think that's here's the, boy, this, <laughs> I would not put him on my minivan. This is a rough <laughs> this is a rough couple of shows. So the last show we were talking about Hebrew breast poetry. Uh <laughs> we ended up on vulvas and testicles. I know uh, hey, if this isn't your flavor or whatever, just yeah, hold on hold tight. We'll we'll get back around to something probably. But uh here's the deal. I, I can't I this this thing that does my music and all the fun stuff that it's supposed to do is just not working right today. So I'm gonna we're gonna cut you off. Uh, you've been listening to live from the past. We do really do appreciate you hanging out. Uh, give us a call or a, or shoot us a text at five one five five one seven zero zero eight five. We will be out of the booth again uh, at least next week, and then uh, hopefully we can settle in something a little bit more regular. But uh, we'll see how life goes. In the meantime, be faithful to the means. God will handle the ends. You've been listening to live from the path. <laughs>